invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philemon for the last time. The next four weeks, as we've mentioned, be the four Sundays of Advent, we will get into the four Gospels. Very quick overview, so we've been going a little slower through this little book, and then we're going to go much faster uh, one Sunday in each Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and trust the Lord will meet us as we see uh, pointing to Jesus in each one. So this morning we are considering this fight for Thanksgiving here in America. We celebrate Thanksgiving this week. Most folks are thinking about turkey or football or Black Friday or that family member that always makes things super awkward. But the question that is at the heart of the idea of giving thanks is, is my heart thankful to God? Easy to go through the motions. The harder thing is to do the hard work of examining our hearts, of asking our own souls questions that would probe, that would examine You see, the Word of God is not something that that moves us to a trite kind of thanksgiving, but the way of the kingdom conveys something of great depth and something that's very different than our American way of thinking. We have seen in Philemon this, this thing we've called the kingdom operating system. And one of the marks of this kingdom operating system is a is a way of thinking that is just bannered. Just, just thanksgiving just rules and, and weaves all over it and all through it. And so we consider that each day we have many reasons to be thankful. Pastor Dan this morning in the prayer meeting was given thanks for the beautiful sunrise. How many sunrises do we see that are glorious? And we don't think so often to give thanks for that gift. Right? So many reasons to be thankful, and yet a war in our souls against this reality. Might be murmuring, or bitterness, or self pity, or anxiety, or fear. But we open God's word now with hopeful expectance that He will help us. Book of Philemon, right before the book of Hebrews, we're going to read from verse 17 down to the end. And before I read verse 17, I'm also going to read verse 4. So verse 4 and then 17 down to the end. I thank my God always. Sorry. Jubilee, we like to stand for the reading of God's word. I forgot to ask you. Could you stand, please, for the reading of God's word? I'm eager to get into it. But we are so thankful for the Word of God that is our authority. And so we stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Philemon, verse 4 and then 17. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Now verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If Onesimus has wronged you at all, Philemon, or owes you anything, 
charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of you, Philemon, owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, Philemon, prepare a guest room for me. For I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. When we consider this letter, we must zoom out our perspective. Remember, Paul is sitting in jail. He has been imprisoned alongside Onesimus, who was a slave who had run away or or been sent away from Philemon, who was his master. And he owed a debt of some kind to Philemon. We're not sure of the exact circumstance. Some have speculated that he's a runaway slave who stole money. Others have uh, thought that the idea is that he was sent from Philemon to help Paul in prison. We don't know. But we do know that Onesimus became a believer in prison, according to what Paul says in this letter. Paul says, he became a son to me, I became a father to him, and where he was thought to be of very little value, he was in fact one whose name would be useful, no longer useless, because he was very useful to Paul, and he was sending one back who was very precious back to Philemon. He was sending one back who might be facing punishment, anger. He didn't know quite what he would expect. And yet Paul was sending him back confident that Philemon, whom he had ministered to as well, who had either come to faith or benefited in faith tremendously by Paul's life, he was confident that Philemon would treat this man Onesimus much better than Onesimus might expect. But when we consider this letter, we need to zoom back even farther from just this immediate context and think about the writer of the letter and how unlikely it is that this man is writing this letter in this way. For when we met Paul in the book of Acts, he was a very different person. Not just was his name different, Saul, but he was a leading religious figure. But it wasn't the religion of Christ. It was the religion of Antichrist. He was a persecutor of those who were walking in the way of Christ, 
seeking to arrest, arrest them, imprison them, and kill them. And he was so important a person that when Stephen was being killed, Paul was there. But he didn't even have to get his hands dirty in the killing of Stephen. He just sat approvingly while others did this work for him. So he was not only a religious man, but he was a very important religious man. He was top of the class. He was important. He was a man of reputation. He was a man of standing. And it had nothing to do with Christ. So think about that man. And now think about the man that says, I am a, verse 1, prisoner for Christ Jesus. I am an old man. I am, a, as he refers to himself in multiple other epistles, a slave of Christ. One who would call this slave Onesimus, who is thought to be the lowest and socially was the lowest in the Roman Empire, calls him his son and his brother. How did we get from Paul, the persecuting leader, to Paul, the prisoner for Christ Jesus? It's easy to approach this letter and just assume all of that. Say, oh, of course, of course. But there's nothing obvious about that. And the context of this letter is also a little strange, isn't it? The one personal letter we have of Paul, we would expect something more significant, right? Like a letter to the emperor, or a letter from the emperor, or a letter to the most famous gladiator that just came to to faith in Jesus, right? That'd be cool. That's the way our mind prone to think, but no, here is one of no account, the lowest of society, and here is Paul, the apostle, putting his name and his reputation and his credibility on the line. Why? Because this is the way of the kingdom that the world will not understand unless they meet and encounter the king of the kingdom as Paul did. For Paul's whole revolution came as he was encountered, accosted by the king of this kingdom, and he, his life changed, and yet his life did not change in a day, did it? This didn't all happen in a month or a year. The heart that we see on display in this letter came through a process of years and decades. How did he get from where he was to where he now is? Keep your finger here and go back to his first epistle, Romans, and go to chapter 5, please. 
you have your, if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. The New Testament is the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we have Acts. And then we have this first epistle, Romans, if you're looking for it. The big numbers are mark the chapters and the little numbers mark the verses. And so we're in chapter 5 and we're just going to read a little bit at the beginning here of chapter 5. This too, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, written by Paul. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is declared righteous by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happened to Paul. And I hope that you have experienced that. If you don't know what it is to be declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus, I would love to talk to you. Friend who brought you would love to talk to you today about that. And through Christ, we also, he continues, have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace is the the riches of God that Christ purchased for us, that we don't deserve, and we stand in it. Paul stands in it. We, if we're a believer today, we stand in it. All the kindness of God that he pours out on us again and again that we don't deserve, we stand in that grace. And, he continues, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We're hoping that God is good. We glorify God Because he is the one we hope in. He is worthy of our hope. More than that, now he continues. And now we want to see something of this process, this transformation. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. It's very strange. You will hear very little on talk radio about rejoicing in your sufferings. Very little in the newspaper on whatever news site you go to about rejoicing in your sufferings. In fact, we really just don't talk about sufferings if we can help it. But he says, no, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, some of you are going through suffering this week. In fact, most of you are going through suffering of one kind or another. And you say, what do you, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about? Rejoice in our sufferings. He continues, knowing that suffering produces something. Under the hand of the Father, as He ordains your life, He ordains that suffering is used to produce something in our lives together. Suffering produces endurance, that is, perseverance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Read this brother's life from the book of 2 Corinthians and hear about the way that he suffered and suffered and suffered and suffered. And you can think, my goodness, God must hate him. When in fact the exact opposite is true. The father loves him and he has a good purpose to produce perseverance and character in his life. And you, friend, might be here today wondering, why, God, are you calling me to walk through suffering? Do you hate me? Have you withdrawn your love from me? 
And Paul would testify to us, no, beloved, our Father loves us and He is using suffering to produce a a character in us that is Christ-like, a a Christ-likeness in us. He's removing our pride and our anxiety and our anger and our lust and He's putting them away. He's refining that impurity out of our life, our addictions, our selfishness. And instead, he is creating this this Christ-like heart, this character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we say, but God, do you really love me? Do you really love us? He continues, while we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this one who wrote Philemon, is one who knew the love of Christ and who knew that that love wrapped around every imprisonment, every disappointment, every tear and every fear and every pain and every difficulty. And like a river valley, that's been cut by water day after day after day, so too this man had been transformed from what he was to what he had become through years of God-ordained suffering and difficulties and trials. And it brought him to this point where he begins the letter, Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Many ways he could have talked to Philemon. Many ways, as an authority, as an apostle, he could have addressed Philemon. But he begins the letter giving thanks and testifying to his prayer for Philemon that he was thankful for him and giving thanks at all times. You see, thanksgiving to God, seeing all of God's good purposes unfolding in our lives is at the heart of Paul's life and ministry. It is one of the big threads that joins this letter and all of Paul's letters together. Almost every epistle you read, it begins with thanks and it ends with thanks. Paul knows that God is at work. And this one who's writing from prison, who's gone through so much being stoned and shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and forsaken. When when we hear a letter from someone who's gone through all of that, what would we expect to hear? Not this. We expect to hear bitterness, self-pity. Finally, when I've written to you, just wondering why am I in prison? Just wondering, Philemon, why has God allowed this to happen to me? When is this going to end? Or we might expect anger, right? Just 
Paul's frustrated with life, and so he's going to lash out. Philemon, what's wrong with you? Why do I have to write this letter? But we, we, we don't see any of this. By the grace of God, here was a man who understood grace, standing in grace, and understood the kingdom. He understands that the king of the kingdom was high and became low to make those who are low brought in, welcomed, loved, cared for. He understood that he was one of those low ones, that the king came low to rescue. And he understands this is not normal. Normal was what he came from. Religious people who do the right thing, who punish lawbreakers, who scorn the lawless, who look down at the wicked. That's who Paul had been. Normal people use their ability to get power and get possession and get position. That's who Paul had been. And then he met the king brought to see that he wasn't righteous. And the only need that the king required was that he see his need of the king. He couldn't earn God's peace. It was a gift from that rich king. This was the gospel. And this was the gospel exchange. So briefly, we're just going to consider some of these phrases that are so powerful here at the end of the letter. Just walk through them bit by bit by bit. We start in verse 17. So, Philemon, if you consider me your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. We're picking up where we left off last time. Here is the apostle writing on behalf of this slave. He's not looking down on him. He is valuing him. If he, verse 18, has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. We considered that last week. What kind of language is that? That is gospel language. It's language that says, I am going to use my position. I'm going to use my standing. I'm going to use my reputation. I'm going to put it on the line for someone who people outside don't think is of any value the most powerful, standing for the least powerful. This is the gospel. And the implications of it are staggering. And they are exciting. Because when this gospel reality takes root in our heart, we begin to do crazy things. And this church is filled with people who are crazy like that in a wonderful way. And you better get out of here soon if you don't want to be drawn into living that crazy gospel kind of life because it's not normal. But it is beautiful. What Frank described, it's exciting. It's exciting. This is the gospel lived out. And it is good. But this is, again, it's just not normal. It's not the normal way we think. Think about another story that involves a powerful person and a slave to see this 
how, how strange this book of Philemon is. So keep your finger here. It's the only other text we'll go to this morning. But go to the Old Testament, in the middle of the history section. We're going to 2 Kings verse 5. 2 Kings verse 5. And there in 2 Kings verse 5, we re- read of a very powerful uh, Syrian commander, army commander named Naaman. Very quickly in 2 Kings chapter 5, we read that he was very important. And there's a slave in the story, and there's a bit of a twist that helps us consider the context of what we're reading in Philemon. 2 Kings 5, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Why? Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So he was standing on grace. He was a mighty man of valor, but he had a problem. What was the problem? He was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. Implication of that story? Naaman, this conquering general, gone off, gone on a raid, brought back this little girl. What's the implication for this little girl? Probably that her parents were killed and she was kidnapped. Well, this little girl, she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. That is Elisha. He would cure Naaman of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Naaman is going to do this the normal way. He's going to do this the right way. Where does he go? He goes to the powerful one. He goes to the king. And who is he going to write to? King of Syria is going to write to the king of Israel. This is the way it works, right? So Naaman went taking with him ten talents of silver. Look in your little notes and see that each talent is 75 pounds of silver. So that's 750 pounds of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. He was bringing some serious loot. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, General. When he says servant, he doesn't really mean servant. He means my general, my important man, that you may cure him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Are you trying to start a fight with me? But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, 
he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me so that he may know there is a prophet of God in Israel. So Naaman came with his entourage. Horses, chariots stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now we read that. We've got to back up and, and say, wait, what happened? General Naaman gets a letter from the king of Syria written to the king of Israel. He goes to the king of Israel. The king of Israel is like, are you kidding me? I can't do this for you. Are you trying to start a war? Elisha hears of it and says, send him over. So he comes with a line of, in today's terms, black SUVs and limousines, right? Horses and chariots pulls up to not a palace, but Elisha's house. And of course, the important man, the prophet, comes out to him, right? No. His servant comes out. And he's got all of this money, all of this loot. And he's going to tell him something really important to do, right? Then he's going to take all of this money. This is going to be a transaction. He's using his power. He's using his, his possession to leverage for his healing. So Naaman standing there at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sends his messenger out. Young man. We don't know how old he was. Maybe he's a teenager. Young college age young guy. And he says, uh, Mr. Naaman, go wash in the Jordan River seven times and your flesh will be restored and you shall be clean. Naaman says, are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. I didn't come here to talk to him and wash in a river. He's angry. Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and he would stand and he would call on the name of the Lord. He would wave his hand over the place and he would cure the leper. Don't we have rivers in Damascus better than all these Israeli rivers? Can I just wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. This is not the way you do it. Don't you understand who I am? My position? My power? Don't you see these possessions I've brought? But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down, dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The powerful humbled. Who pointed the powerful to the way he should go? A slave girl of no account. 
This is the upside-down reality of the kingdom. This is how God works. God uses the slave girl who should have been bitter, but in fact loved and honored this one who was almost too proud to be healed. And Elisha, who understands the kingdom, was not blown away by power, and he wasn't greedy for money. He understood the reality that he was one of God's treasured possession. Therefore, he didn't have to chase after Naaman's money. It's a great reversal of the way the world works, the way the kingdom works. This kingdom operating system is always turning our perspective upside down. And so it was with Naaman and Elisha, and so it is here. That the apostle writes on behalf of the slave, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. Then he continues, I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul is not asking to get paid. Though he has ministered to Philemon, he has poured himself out. He wants to cash in a little bit of goodwill. He wants to say, listen, brother, refresh my heart. As I've loved you, loved me, love me by loving this one. And then verse 21 begins with four powerful words that I want us to consider. As as Paul has written this letter to Philemon, sending Onesimus back, Onesimus trembling, afraid, not sure what's going to happen. Paul writes this. These are very challenging words. As I've meditated on them these, this month, thinking about them, maybe you have as well. He says this, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Confident of your obedience. Who is Paul confident in ultimately? He's confident ultimately in God. That the God who began a good work in Philemon is going to bring it to completion. That God is going to bring about the obedience of love here. He's writing to him with hope in God. Hope in God for Philemon. He's confident that God is going to do this good work in Philemon. Question? Did he? Did God do that good work in Philemon's heart? Go to this side of the room if you think the answer is yes. Go to this side of the room if you think the answer is no. No, not quite. Well, we do have the letter, don't we? Which means he didn't crumple it up and throw it in the bin. He didn't burn it. And so it seems likely that yes, his confidence was well-placed. And I think, okay, why is this powerful? This is powerful as you disciple younger believers 
as you parent children who are growing up into adults. And you can either be confident that God is at work and going to do a good work in them, or option B, much more normal, much less helpful, you can fret like crazy. You can drive yourself crazy with fear. You can be incredibly anxious at all times, worrying, wondering what's going to happen. Where are they going? What are they doing? This is big. This is big. This is the fight of faith right here. Can I trust God for my children? Can I trust God for this new believer, for this one I'm seeking to invest in? Can I trust God for them? Will my heart be filled with thanksgiving, loving God and loving them, praying for them and trusting Him? Or will my heart not be filled with thanksgiving, only with fretting and anxiety and fear? And oh, loved ones, This is a fight. This is a fight. For as we've said, Paul could have written here a very different letter. He could have written a letter of command filled with fretting and fear, and he didn't. God was at work. He had seen it. He knew it. He was thankful. He was trusting. And so he wrote, confident of your obedience I write to you. Friends, that is powerful. Because the uncertainty of the future can lead us to so many unhelpful places. Bitterness, why is my life this way? Disappointment, why is it X and not Y? Covetousness, oh, why am I not like them? Anxiety, God, I know you've provided every year of my life for 45 years, but what about tomorrow? Fear. Sounds silly when you say it, but when you're all alone in your room, you can't sleep, you're tossing and turning, there's a fight, right? There is a fight. And so we fight. When we ask these questions, why is my life going this way? What will happen? What's going to become of this loved one? And these are the thoughts that seek to choke out faith and peace and thanksgiving. And yet we gather here to see our Father, to be reminded of who He is and His promises that are true. We sing to stir up our faith, loved ones. And He has provided for us every day of our lives. And He will lead us in his paths of righteousness for his name's sake. You see, Thanksgiving doesn't demand us to know what will be. Thanksgiving responds to what is and what has been and what is true about God. Thomas Watson in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, asks us about our trials. He says again and again, believer, where would you be if God had not ordained this trial or this suffering or this affliction for you? Would you now be trusting in Jesus? 
Would you now be hoping in God? Would you now not be walking in wickedness if God had not chosen this or that difficulty or trial for you? These are the questions we must ask our heart. Because there is this push, this wave that wants to drive away thanksgiving. And only murmur. Paul could have written a note of politicking or advocating for himself or demanding his rights. All of those would have been, as we've said, normal. But he had entrusted his life with God. He knew his life was hidden with Christ in God, and he had entrusted Philemon and Onesimus. And so he wrote, as a prisoner of Christ, from prison, with thanksgiving, to God for his new son. Question. Talk about this afternoon. What effect do you think this had on Philemon? And what effect did it have on Onesimus? As we said in the first message on this book, church history points to the reality that there was a man named Onesimus who became a bishop of the church in Colossae where this church met right after, a couple decades after this book was written. We don't know 100% sure that's the same guy. I don't know how many Onesimuses there were floating around. But oh my, if that's the same guy, remarkable grace of God through this one who was so strong and yet living out of his weakness. Last bit, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here is Paul, the apostle, speaking of these others with him as absolute peers and friends. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Even in prison, There is Paul living in community, loving the saints well. God is at work. Paul's not isolated. He's not on his own. He's thankful for his fellow prisoners and workers. There's a humility even at the end, recognizing the gifts that are the people around him with a heart of thanksgiving. The humility that God had produced in Paul led him to see the grace of God at work in the lives of those around him. Where before pride had only led him to see the flaws and reasons to criticize and complain. Jubilee Thanksgiving is a community project. We need one another to help us gain a right perspective. As we gather in missional life groups and conversations as families together, we need one another to help us Think rightly. Help us be stirred up in giving thanks. And, brother and sister, when you leave from this place, when your time at Jubilee is done, give thanks for God's grace and then pursue a new community. It's never going it alone. And, 
even in verse 24, there's a warning. For we will read in 2 Timothy that while Mark, Aristarchus, and Luke were pressing on, Demas was not. He stopped fighting. He gave up the fight of faith. And he said, I'm going after the world. The letter ends in verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace was what marked Paul's life, his ministry from beginning to end. He knew that he stood only by grace, and so do we. Grace recognizes that all we have is a gift from God, and it's that in which we stand. And grace leads us to thanksgiving. And grace leads us out of idolatry. So as you prepare to have a meal on Thursday or whatever other day you might be doing it this week, ask one question, one application. What form of idolatry is seeking to undermine your thanksgiving? What good thing has become an ultimate thing in your life that is choking out thanksgiving to God? What is the thing that most quickly and most often leads you to fear, to anxiety, or to anger? Might be a child. Might be the future. Might be the pursuit of some amusement. Consider, is there something in your heart that moves you away from thanksgiving towards these other things? For we have read here these weeks about one who had many reasons to murmur, to fear, to be anxious. And yet God had worked in his life through many trials to bring about a heart full of thanksgiving because of the grace of God displayed in the love of Christ that would allow him and then Onesimus and Philemon after him to rest confident in his good shepherd.